trying, trying to escape this Utah. Who child is got to jump in too wild. That's why we got more than two stops. Two and that's the situation too shy. And though the road is rocky, I'm ready to try. The next mile to break sight to the blind man. It's down to the left child. We will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Bob and Lonnie like a rebel fish. Jumping is specialist, predatory and survivalist. Spinning heaven, fire from his lips. Welcome listeners to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This history and a current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. With all that I get and get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash Time for an awakening. Again, it's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Catch the live stream there also. It's also streaming at obb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. And catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn Radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn Radio is a free app. And then that tune in app, just type in Time for an Awakening in the search engine. You'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always have interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. I do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program. With the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 on the steamy Sunday evening in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. 
our special guest this evening, author, professor of community justice and social economic development in the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College in New York City. Jessica Gordon Nimhart is with us this evening. The discussion will center around the classic book, Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. You can be involved in the conversation also by dialing 215-490-9832. And we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time For an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative, accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. 
from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 79th Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to uh, to engage in this conversation. You know, at the museum, um, since we're dealing with Philadelphia colonial period, um, um, mutual aid societies, which Dr. Um, Nemhard's um, book really starts with as far as the historical development of these cooperatives, is um, something that, you know, really we constantly um, impart of how fundamental they are. So I'm really excited. And, and, and I said that word really, really excited. Yes, I am. Um, to, to be engaged in this conversation. I'm glad that she's with us to share uh, insight and information about um, what's in our book and, and her experience and helping people develop them. Listen, I know that you deal a lot with this at the museum. It's something that's, uh, that's uh, always on your mind. You've been talking about, uh, getting uh, Professor Gordon Nimhart on the program for a while, and I'm glad that she's able to be on tonight to uh, to talk about this uh, important topic. And let's uh, bring her on, author, professor of community justice and social economic development in the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College. Professor Jessica Gordon Nimhart is with us in conversation. How are you? I'm fine. Good evening, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to have you join us. Uh, Professor Jessica, um, let's let's start this way before I pass the mic to Brother Richard, because I know he's chomping at the bit. Um, in the past uh, over 100 years, it's been one book and your book that's been written about this subject. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote the economic uh, cooperation among Negro Americans in 1907, I think, or 06. Okay. And then 07, he published it in 07. Yeah. Okay. And then your book came out in 14. The two books that I know, yes, the two books that I know of that has been dedicated to this particular subject, unless you can enlighten me, but what made you write the book that you did when you kind of, uh, took his book and went further 
kind of updated it for, for, you know, for our people here in the struggle. Right. What made you do that? Right. Well, um, I was working for a nonprofit at the time that I got the idea, um, actually the Children's Defense Fund and the Black Community Crusade for Children. I'm a political economist, and I was looking into strategies for African-American-led community economic development that really was family and children friendly, that would really move us more toward liberation. And the more I started looking into those kinds of strategies, the more I ran into, you know, um, community-owned businesses, cooperatively-owned businesses, collectives as viable strategies that would really help communities keep their resources recirculating in the community and keep community um, ownership and decision-making about economic activity. But as I started talking, I'm, I'm a scholar activist, so I talk to people about my ideas, and I go to conferences and talk about things, and I went to co-op conferences to learn more about co-ops. I went to community economic development conferences to learn more about community economic development. I went to black economic conferences and black community conferences. And when I, no matter what conference I went to, no matter who was there, if I talked about black people and co-ops, everybody gave me blank stares. Mm. Right. And black people told me, oh, no, we don't do that. Right. We don't do co-ops. Right. Um, white people said, oh, we don't know about that. Now, you know, there were there are there were black co-ops in existence at the time I was going to these conferences, but people didn't know about them. They weren't represented. So I started I actually luckily had a colleague, a, a cl an old classmate from grad school who had studied Du Bois's economic thought. Um, and so I started talking to him about the issue, and he was like, oh, you got to read Du Bois, not the, nor not the regular stuff people read about Du Bois, but Du Bois has this, this, um, this monograph that he did in 1907 around a conference that he did on black co-op businesses. He also wrote things in his autobiography about his interest in cooperative economics for blacks as a liberation strategy. And so I started from there. And then I was convinced that it wasn't just that I needed to understand that it could be a strategy for Blacks, but I needed to show people examples so that people saw that there was a legacy, that Black people do do this, um, and how and why. So then I brought it upon myself to kind of just comb through our history to find as many examples as I could um, of the different forms. And, you know, luckily, as you know, we had um, Du Bois's work. So he also helped me to see that there's lots of different forms and structures to do cooperative and solidarity economics. So it wasn't just that it had to be a formally incorporated food co-op or credit union. But, but I looked for both the formally incorporated cooperatives as well as the mutual aid societies and all the different kinds of collective economics and what Du Bois called economic cooperation throughout history. Uh, uh, Professor Jessica, talk about some of the, because um, I got one other question I want to ask you before I pass the mic to Richard. Uh, talk about the, uh, give a brief thumbnail sketch of some of the historical origins of uh, African-American co-op since we've been here in this country. Right. So absolutely. Um, what I found was pretty much from the beginning of our experience, right, being brought in chains, across the Middle Passage um, into, onto U.S. soil, or it wasn't U.S. even at that time, but onto what becomes U.S. soil, we practice all different kinds of mutual aid and solidarity, helping each other, 
you know, survive enslavement, right? You can think about um, uh, the Underground Railroad as being a kind of solidarity, economic cooperative solidarity system, right? People sharing the resources that they had to help people move from slavery out of slavery, right? Out of enslavement, from enslavement, out of enslavement. We've got what we call mutual aid societies, which I think you guys will talk to me more about, but that's where people actually pooled their resources in order to cover, pay for, or provide services that they weren't getting, especially, again, as enslaved people, but even um, freed people use these. And the first ones were actually burial societies, which is very interesting, right? Because why would that be the very first kind of mutual aid? But, right, it goes back to how important African retentions and African culture was. And in African culture, almost all the African cultures, burying your dead properly mattered. And so now you have people who are totally right. They don't own their own bodies. They have no control over anything. Their dead are buried, you know, very disrespectfully. So they would pool what meager resources they had, and then they would be able to bury their dead the way they wanted to. They then started using mutual aid to, you know, for, um, for malnutrition and lack of of food, for uh, even for housing and things like that, widow and orphan uh, services. And again, the same idea, bring people together who are either neighbors or in the same fraternity or religious organization, bring them together to help each other pool their resources. And then who's ever in need gets to use that pooled fund to help their family, help themselves. And then you, you, know, you continue to replenish the pooled funds so that it keeps recirculating around to who needs it. Um, and slowly but surely, you build up more and more institutional and structural ways to how do you handle those pooled resources? How do you connect? By the time we get um, to the late 1700s, we have official, very formal mutual aid societies. By the time we get to the late 1880, 1800s, around the 1880s, we actually have formal co-ops being started in credit unions. Um, and you know, I'll talk more about um, some examples in a minute, but that notion of communities, people helping each other and supporting each other when there's no other way, when they're being discriminated against, exploited, super exploited, right? But, but neighbors and people in the same condition helping each other is really the beginning for any, right, technically any group, but, you know, I focused on African-Americans, um, but really any group, all humanity, really, I think economics started as cooperative collective economics because that's how we as human beings, right, we're social beings. We always come together to help each other. But in particular, African-Americans were able to, 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 to look back at what they did in Africa and what they needed in the U.S. and were able to pull those two things together, the need to help each other and to help themselves with um, the practices and spirituality of helping each other and working together. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because that was my next question. Um, and it kind of dovetailed on what you stated when you said you, that you met with uh, different cultural organizations and mentioned about uh, co-ops and they said, well, we don't do that or black people don't do that. And, you know, I just, cause you just touched on it. I, I wanted you to, um, to kind of go into how these things were basically uh, established on cultural principles that our people brought here from the continent and not just on Christian principles, because a lot of people think that these things were started basically because our people uh, developed an affinity or, or, gra or was grafted into Christianity. And that's how these things started. 
but uh, you kind of cleared it up saying that a lot of these things were brought with our people. Uh, these ethics and principles were brought with our people when it came to this, this these shores. Yeah, I would say it's really both. So, I mean, we can definitely look at, and I know someone who wrote a small little book on the Christian principles of cooperation, right? Okay. So it's definitely true that if you can find principles in the Bible that connect with cooperation and, mm-hmm. and that are similar to cooperation. Yes. But in terms of understanding movement, right, cooperative movements and why people join cooperatives and engage in the commons and collectivity and stuff, is about what I would call more broader humane ethics, right, and principles. Um, And actually, again, it's not just African-Americans, right, and it's not just Christianity, right, because the Nation of Islam uh, and Islam also believes in uh, these principles. But it's these principles about, right, bringing people together who care about it, right, so it's caring uh, equality, equity, democracy, self-help, self-responsibility, solidarity, um, right? Being honest, open, caring for others, social responsibility to others. You put all those kind of values together and people who can feel an affinity. So often um, the co-ops were often started by religious people who are in the same religious organization, but they were also often started by people in the same fraternal organization and the same civic organization, often early black independent schools, um, parents who are members of those schools worked with the teachers and started co-ops. So it's really about those, that sense of solidarity and affinity and people who are in similar experiences but had that sense of solidarity are able to do this kind of collective cooperative economics because of those, those relationships and upholding those values. Uh, Richard, jump in. Um, that's that's that sense of solidarity is, um, I, I guess, where I wanted to, um, you know, kind of start from. Because I'm wondering, and I'm glad that your 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 background and and your interests, you know, really um, help to you know bring all these um, examples, you know, um, up the of, mm-hmm. of, of these cooperatives. So, I, you know, and I and and I'm. Um, especially in this time, right? We are talking about reparations. We're talking about generational wealth and, yeah. and, and, and all these other things. And it just, um, I'm still not hearing um, people raise this question about cooperatives, but for examples, um, how, you know, I seen, um, I was interested in the cooperative banks um, and I was mm-hmm. looking, I was looking at Lexington savings banks and St. Luke um, penny savings bank. Um, can you um, give us some insight on how those bank formations as cooperatives um, kind of how that structural process, I, you, you spoke to the values that's necessary, but when we're talking about institutions like banks, people, I don't really hear them talk as much about black people creating cooperative banks. Um, can you right. back right about that? Yes, Absolutely. So again, everything starts with mutual aid, right? And so in some ways, mutual aid societies were community banks, right? If you think about what a mutual aid society is, right? You actually have, sometimes they're called a banker, sometimes they're called something else, but you have someone who collects everybody's dues or money. People put in a certain amount of money in the pot and then right, not only do you, does somebody need to hold the money, but also then it needs to get distributed 
in an equitable way. And that's where everybody gets to agree on what's the principle for distribution. Is it whoever needs to bury someone or needs to go to the hospital or whatever who gets that pool of money? Is it, you know, in some of the um, ISUSUs and rotating savings and loan um, programs, it's, you know, one person each month gets the pot, right? So all that kind of democratic decision-making about what you do with the pooled money, pulling together that pooled money, whether you call it dues or monthly payment or premium or whatever. Um, and so you start there. A lot of those mutual aid societies got more formalized and some of them actually became mutual insurance companies, right? Similar concepts. But in mutual insurance, it's not the insurance, it's not a for-profit company where the insurance company takes all the profits and just pays out as little as possible. But in these cases, again, everybody gets to make the decision about those pool of things. The penny a day um, a bank that was established by um, uh, Maggie Lena Walker and the um, and her mutual aid society. Oh gosh, I just flipped out of my mind the name of the society that that she that she was the president of but they were they actually were literally a mutual aid society they started out um, in several northern cities in Massachusetts and then they ended up headquartering in Richmond headquartering in Richmond by the time um, Magdalena Walker took over as president of the whole organization she worked with her board and they decided they needed a formal bank, right? Being a mutual aid society wasn't good enough. They wanted something much more um, institutionalized and organized. And so they then created the bank. They also created a department store. But again, the notion there is back to that pooling resources and democratic decision-making. And so that's what makes these a cooperative rather than a for-profit bank. The purpose is right, to make sure that money, loan, lending, and financial services are accessible to the members and the members being the community or at least the people who have deposited something into the bank. And then by the time you get to formal credit unions, you actually have um, bylaws and procedures that are operated according to international um, co-op principles, which is for a credit union, as soon as long as you have $5 deposited in a savings account in a credit union, you're a member. And if you're a member, you get to vote on the board of directors. You can either run for the board of directors yourself or vote on who would be in the board of directors and you get to vote on policy. And so you're running a bank based on people's ability to get access to the finances, access to their own savings and their community's savings to do things that they need to do personally or business-wise, especially mortgages and things like that. And then there's, you know, the decision-making is again based on community need and, and what's gonna help the community. So um, interest rates are usually lower on loans and a little higher on accounts, things like that, because the whole point is to support the members with the kind of financial services they need and to give members a chance to weigh in. Now, unfortunately, not all credit unions are as democratic as they should be, um, but their charters say that they are. So it's more about whether members know enough to assert their right to be part of the democratic process. Um, I don't know if that actually answered your question, but that, that, you know, and then for these banks, they actually hire people who understand financial services to actually run the companies. But again, the members 
um, vote on the board and vote on the major policy decision. And, and, and I think that, you know, and it's and, and, and my mind is going in different places and I want to be you know, fair to you in, in relationship to our conversation about this because, um, let, you know, and I think Elliot touched that touched it, but I think it's most important when we're talking about these cooperatives, um, how important um, va the value, the collective values are. Now, historically, um, we had, um, may have had constraints, um, whether it had been because of, 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 of citizen, non-citizenship for free Africans, and then, you mm -hmm. know, the thing of, um, you know, group terrorism that we had to work together. And, you know, the value system was there or the, the need to work together. Um, right. Explain, you know, with cooperatives, what you, you were talking as you're dealing with the banks, the decision-making process, but in order for us to come together, even to make it begin to work, don't we have to have a certain set of values with each other, social relationship? And what are they? And what do you think about that? Um, the necessity of evaluating that uh, even today? Right. So one of the things that's really interesting in the co-op movement is by the, uh, uh, when is it, 1880s or something, um, the world is an international cooperative alliance, which kind of codifies the, that list of values that I mentioned and also seven principles for how any business that's a cooperative should operate. And again, the point of co-ops are they are value-based member-owned businesses. Their purpose is not, they can still be for-profit businesses, but their purpose and their mission is not for profit, right? Their mission is to serve their communities, to solve economic problems, to address market failure, and um, to help solve community problems in a mutually, in a collective way. And they depend on people's participation and decision-making. So then, you know, so the principles for how to do that are based on you need open, they call it open and voluntary membership, right? So you're not coerced. Some uh, dogmatic group isn't running the business, right? Democratic uh, participation in the decision-making, that's one person, one vote, instead of one share, one vote, right? In share corporations and small businesses, it's how much money you put in by buying shares that gives you the decision-making power. But in a co-op, it's, um, you can invest as much money as you want into the co-op, but everybody just gets one vote as a member. So you don't have the tyranny of who already has money to contribute or already put in, or even who put in more sweat equity. Everybody gets the same vote. So that's important, giving back to your community, connecting with other co-ops, continuous education, because again, you can't really um, participate in making decisions about a business if you don't know, right? If you don't know the information. So co-ops also have a practice and a requirement that everybody needs to be educated so they can read the, um, the P&L, the profit and loss statements, so they can understand what the business does. They can understand how to make these policy decisions about how the business is run and how to, how to distribute the surplus so the education piece is also extremely important. In fact, in the histories that I found, um, most of the co-ops I found anything about how they started, started with a study group. So people came together to study the problem, right? We don't have a bank in our community. We don't have access to healthy food. We don't um, have work in our community. We don't have um, a gas station. And they would look into the different ways that they could do it as a community 
somebody would ultimately come up with the credit, the co-op model, and they'd start learning that. Some people got sent other places to learn from other black groups about the co-op model and then would come back to their study group. But everybody really started with studying together. And so that's how you built right, the knowledge that you need to make the joint decisions, but also that camaraderie and trust by working and learning together. What was interesting to me is that, um, and help me if I'm getting this right, um, Wilberforce, I, I take it as the, the college, um, had a beginning from a co-op perspective. Is that is that true? I think so, but it's actually not one of the, um, it's not one of the stories I know well, but I think you're absolutely right that a group of people came together and said we need, you know, basically I think it started as a training school or junior college or something. People pulled together. Um, I have lots of other examples that I know more details about where, um, you know, but, but right, but that notion that people, black people have realized one, how important education is in general but two, that they use studying together as a way to learn about and execute alternative economic strategies is a really important part of history that got lost. And I think luckily I was able to resurrect and, and have people talk more about. And can you give an example of, of one of those schools that you see that you like stuck out to you as far as that evolution? Right. Well, in North Carolina in the 1930s, there were two independent black, um, you know, elementary and junior high schools, or I guess junior high and high school, um, uh, one with the Bricks Association and one called Terrell County. And what they were doing was they, they were actually running regular schools for black children, but they were also doing uh, community education for the parents of their children. And one of the things they were helping the parents do was to survive the Great Depression. And how were they doing that? They were helping the parents to learn about credit unions and cooperatives, how to start them so they could do um, co-op co farming, they could share um, machinery, they could buy uh, supplies in bulk, they could uh, start a credit union and, and put their money in a credit union and then get loans to either buy equipment or buy property with the loans. And so these schools actually started teaching the parents at night, the kids during the day, and then started helping um, their communities, including the parents uh, and other people in their communities to start these all these different kinds of cooperatives. They then actually formed um, uh, Eastern North Carolina Association for all the black co-ops in the Eastern North Carolina area. And then they branched into a whole North Carolina state co-op association with all blacks doing co-ops and credit unions. And so that's sort of one example where they start out um, doing just regular education, but then they branched into uh, broad, bigger education stuff. We've got groups like um, in Gary, Indiana, also during the Great Depression, where um, the principal and some of the teachers at one of the black high schools brought brought a group of community members together after the last uh, steel mill closed down and the last bank branch left their neighborhood. And again, they started talking about what should we do? You know, this is untenable. We need we need uh, more activity in our communities. And again, one of their members had just been to a training in Cleveland or something on cooperatives and brought that back to the group. They started night school courses for adult education um, co-ops and they ended up starting two grocery store co-ops, uh, 
a gas station and a credit union. Hmm. And so there's lots of those kinds of examples. And again, it's really people coming together and saying, what can we do? And then that learning together really helps to develop that trust and solidarity that they need to actually run a business together. You know, Ali, this um, Dr. Nimbahart um, brings up a point. I hate to I hate to take it there, but you know, as I said earlier, we're we're in an era where we're constantly talking about um, um, you know the HR forty or you know that transfer intergenerational transfer of wealth. And when you gave this example, the question the question comes to mind about sustainability over time. Um, right. Would it, would it, would it, um, can you share your thoughts on, I mean, you, I mean, you spoke almost of a region that started from a cooperative perspective and evolved um, during the Depression. And I'm wondering, um, I don't know if we can still point to that um, economic infrastructure um, still existing today. It may, but I'm not sure. Um, does it? In your, you know, in your observation and in, in your experience, and yeah. why not? So um, there's two things I want to say about sustainability, but first I'll sort of answer your what we call an ecosystem question. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely uh, periods and places where we can see ecosystems, you know, started and lasted a while, maybe eight to ten years. Um, maybe, you know, a couple of places had some co-ops that lasted 20 or 30 years. And in a minute, I'll talk about sort of some of the things I learned about why not all the co-ops last, you know, for 20 or 30 years. Um, but the ecosystem thing, um, continues to happen. We have ecosystems right now of black groups that are starting to put co-ops together, right? Um, Solidarity Chicago is doing ecosystem support for black and brown co-op development in Chicago, especially since COVID. Um, uh, Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi has been doing a project, what, for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. um, or so. Um, New York City has some ecosystems, not just black and brown, but mostly black and brown groups doing co-op development and support systems. Uh, Newark, New Jersey's mayor has talked about doing more co-op development. Madison, Wisconsin, um, we've got that group that got a lot of uh, attention a couple of months ago in Georgia that's starting their own sort of intentional community to create their own black town that's going to be based on a co-op ecosystem. So we definitely have um, currently and um, throughout our history in the U.S., we have these examples of people coming together and not just saying, let me just create one co-op because I just want good food in my neighborhood or whatever, but often creating interlocking co-ops or co-ops that work with each other, you know, first a food co-op, then a credit union, then a gas station or a a factory co-op or something like, you know, a worker co-op. So we have these And what I've found is for sustainability, what has made them most sustainable is, sorry, are a couple of elements. One is that connection through self-education and continuously educating each other, right? But also I learned that um, the periods of time, there were three and now we're growing our period, pandemic period now is probably the fourth period, but there was three major periods of time for most that I found the most black co-ops. One was the 1880s, one was the 1930s and 40s, and the other one was the 1960s and 70s. The commonalities between those periods, 
were first not even economic downturn because the 60s and 70s weren't really an economic downturn, but economic downturn and economic necessity come in there. But one of the first things I noticed was that those three periods of time were the periods where we had the largest, strongest black organizations that were also talking about and training people in cooperative economics. So in the 1880s, we had the Knights of Labor, we had the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union, they're the largest organizations of their time. They're a combination of labor unions, co-op developers, political parties, um, and they're dedicated to teaching people about cooperative economics and helping to, to finance education and, and startups, right? The 30s and 40s, not only do we have actually the New Deal, SER's government promoting co-op development, but we've got the Young Negroes Cooperative League. We've got the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They're all doing co-op education among black folks and talking to black folks about strengthening our communities by using cooperatives um, and doing study groups and training. And so, and you can see the difference. And even in the 1940s, we've got black um, colleges teaching cooperative economics and consumer economics. And you see um, co-ops developing from that. And in the 60s and 70s, we've got the Black Panther Party, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, Nation of Islam are all talking about and helping people to create cooperatives and to do cooperative economics. And so, you know, that strong black organizations, the, the co-op education, the pulling together finance also to help. Um, and then, you know, people sense that if they don't do this right, they won't survive. So that, you know, sometimes the economic survival piece is important too, but that but we, the organizing and the organiz, and the importance of organizations and then the importance of community support. So it's not just that these black organizations are pushing co-ops, but they're making sure that even community members who aren't members of the co-op know that that co-op exists, why it exists, and are willing to put their money and their bodies in support of the co-ops. And so those are the elements that really have made co-ops survive when they do survive, and we can see when they don't survive, it's usually because they're missing that combination of things. That's 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 powerful. And and uh, and Elliot, I, I take it um, is something as she uh, as she brings out that um, raises this question that for me around. Do you think, um, Dr. Nimhard, that um, HR forty or uh, as a recommendation for reparations that one of the elements should be um, to consider uh, co-ops as a part of dealing with the repair, the economic repair that we're talking about needing to come out. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I actually wrote an article in 2018 in the uh, Journal of African-American History. Uh, it's called, I think it's called Sabotage Against Co-ops, A Case for Reparations. Mm. And um, that's the other thing I forgot to say. The other major reason why a lot of black co-ops do fail or did fail or, you know, aren't, aren't in, in existence as long as we want is that they were sabotaged. Uh, white supremacists and white competitors often wouldn't, you know, wouldn't let the banks provide financing, uh, did other kinds of financial ways to sabotage insurance companies and landowners, you know, jacked up the rent and made the co-ops go under, um, and then we, you know, some co-op members were lynched, some co-ops were burned down by white supremacist terrorism, things like that. So often the co-ops are actually doing fine, except that um, uh, 
the competition and the the white supremacist violence got in the way. And so often, you know, blacks saw that the co-ops didn't last as long as they wanted them to and said, oh, that's because we can't, we don't know how to run businesses and we mm-hmm. can't. But actually, if you look at the history, it was these outside forces. And so the article I wrote was trying to give enough examples to see throughout history, you know, even up to more current times, sabotage has continued. And that, that we can add that as a case for why we need reparations, but it also made me think about the use of reparations, right? We, we should get reparations money to be put in back into infrastructure and ecosystem building, right? So doing co-op education, non-extractive finance for co-ops, because, right, what we really want reparations to do is we don't want just compensation, right? We want a new world. We want to stop, right, institutional racism and exploitation, um, Right. So we, it's not just that we want to be compensated for what keeps happening to us, that we want to stop it. And the only way to really stop it is to help people to develop these different systems of economic relations, right, different economic structures. And so we need people to know more about the model, to be encouraged, right, to change their businesses over or to start businesses with this model, to have money to help start those. Right. Um, and so we want money to do conversions. We want money to do startups. We want money so people understand um, that the co-op structure is really a way to stop the kind of exploitation that we've experienced over the last 500 years. And and we have in that decision-making process to to where we're making decisions of how that development is going. Owning and controlling that, and the money gets recirculated. If you look at it, right, the money recirculates through co-op ownership. It goes back into communities. It goes back into Black communities. That's why the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was so supportive of co-ops in the 30s and 40s, because they saw that, you know, their good union wages after they won union representation needed to, they wanted it to nurture Black communities, right? And if it was just going back to buying stuff in a white store and putting their money into a a white bank, right? It didn't recirculate into the black community. And so making sure we have interlocking co-ops working together. So you put your money in a credit union, you buy from the the co-op food store and the co-op department store, you live in co-op housing, right? All these things keep the money recirculating and controlled by blacks in our own communities. You know, Ellie, uh, as she uh, laid this out for me, it brought to me, you know, you know, something that you always touch about um, black black elected officials, and and it just raised the question of why, because I don't hear it around us, right, um, about co-ops coming from the polit- you know, these elected officials as a possible economic development tool. I, I I don't know what you think about that, Elliot, but it just seems that that should been a, be something instead of dealing with, and we see, especially here, um, how we have black elected officials are involved in the gentrification process as far as, you know, redeveloping neighborhoods. But I don't right. think that's a strategy that that could have been also presented that could have been able to develop the communities and the people, other well, people and the communities that people live in. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, in fact, that was one of my uh, questions um, that I wanted to ask uh, Professor Jessica before, you know, before we wind up, uh, you know, bring things to a close. But before I do that, uh, and I don't think it can be stressed enough, Professor Jessica, you said that a lot of co-ops and and movements, uh, and you mentioned a couple of periods in history where 
a lot of them started. And you mentioned around the 1880s, which was in, a key to me because uh, two things. I don't think that we can minimize enough about the legacy of our people's oppression being involved right. in why we don't practice co-ops. Number one, the, the legacy of mistrust among that had been developed and cultivated among our people through the enslavement. And plus the racial attacks and, and, uh, and fear that had been planted and, and uh, or that had been, our people had been uh, exposed to after they tried to develop these things. If you look at the sabotage, right. you mentioned the sabotage of uh, Freedman's Bank is a glaring example of sabotage. And yep. also, you mentioned that Colored Farm, Farmers Cooperative that was started in 1886, and I think they had developed over a million members by the early 1890s. But when they right. were behind the uh, cotton picker strike, and you see that, in fact, that was a um, a racial attack on our people that's historic, where hundreds of our people were killed because of that, and that basically broke up the Colored Farmers Alliance. But, uh, you know, I, the reason I'm mentioning that, because I don't think that those things can be, we, we can't whitewash those things. We have to talk about them. They have to be put in the public sphere, especially among black people that don't know, because some of our people do have that. And even now we have callers that call this program that believe that our people just can't get it right, uh, that our people right. are somewhat less than, they can't start these things like other people. But it's not that. It's a lot of other factors involved, and you touched on them tonight. Right, yeah. Um, thanks for bringing that up. The 1880s were absolutely fascinating time, right? It's the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the end of re, uh, Reconstruction, right? Reconstruction ends in uh, uh, 1876 or 1877. Um, and by the 1880s, it's a very repressive time, right? All, most of the um, southern states have put in the Jim Crow laws and you know, reinstituted segregation. The northern states aren't doing much better because there's an economic crisis and they're, you know, hiring um, European immigrants instead of blacks and, you know, trying to keep blacks from the vote. Uh, blacks can't vote anymore in the South. And yet it's also one of the most progressive periods, right, with these the beginning of um, unions. And at this time, the progressive unions are actually integrated, even in Jim Crow areas. They might have separate assemblies for blacks and whites, but the, but they're all a part of the same union. And these unions are also trying to run political parties and demand political rights as well as economic rights. They're also heavy in the co-op movement, um, demanding to start worker co-ops, worker construction companies, worker factories, right? Um, the unions are also unions of farm workers. And then the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union is actually an alliance of farm workers and black farm owners. So mm -hmm. an unheard of combination of people who are all believe in this, right, trying to create this better world where we all own and run our stuff together, where we use cooperative ownership as a way to make these things happen, all during a very repressive um, economic time and a repressive political time. So it's, a, it's, it's really fascinating if you study what we were able to do under those worst conditions. So between all the lynchings and the voter suppression and all that, we were still able to do these things. The other thing that people don't realize, right, when we think about the failures is that actually small businesses fail at even a higher rate than co-ops do. 
And yet again, people think of co-ops more as failing because it's not a model they're used to. And so they focus more on when a co-op fails. But small businesses fail, I think it's 10 times more mm. than co-ops do, but we're just used to that, right? Everybody's kind of used to that. Um, but we make up these narratives as if we can't do it because that we focus on the failures as opposed to focusing on all the gains that even the short-lived co-ops have provided, right? Between actually addressing the economic issue that they were meant to address, distributing income and wealth more equally, providing those goods and services that people weren't getting that they need, creating leadership, right? Educating, right? Uh, increasing the education level of members, all that kind of stuff, even for a co-op that only lasts a year or two, um, are incredible benefits that we just are so invisible that people don't see that. All they see is whether it survived or not. And then they often don't even see sometimes the sabotage is invisible or people are too embarrassed to talk about it. And so then these legacies are a failure when they really were these incredible legacies of resistance and success. I can't help you know, the, um, the question came when you mentioned about success. Uh, there's a, a quote you have, or a quote I took out of your book, um, success depends in large part on the ability of the communities to communities to identify existing individuals and community assets and pool the and pool and organize them as a resource for production and cooperative enterprise. Um, right. I, I, I have from what you see in our environment today, um, do we have less individuals and community assets in our urban communities than those times in the past? No, I think we always, we still and always have community assets. It's just how you look at things, right? Again, capitalism, you know, is a, is a economics of scarcity, cooperatives and solidarity economics are economics of abundance, right? And so it's all about how you look at things. If you're always looking at scarcity and deficit, then that's all you see or get, right? But the thing that's so wonderful about cooperatives is it's always looking at what right the abundance of if we work together right if we pool if even if we all have meager resources once we pool them right we can leverage those pooled resources to get other resources and to do the things we need if we do it together if we work together if we combine our social capital with our human capital with our finance capital right we can get do all the things we need to do that we couldn't do if we were just trying to do a follow a for-profit model and exploit other people or let other people exploit us, right? So looking at this as a kind of humane way to manage abundance and to create abundance for ourselves, I think is a better way to look at these things. And then if we do it that way, any period of time, including now, right, during COVID, when, you know, people are struggling with their health as well as struggling with employment and economics and stuff, but we see a proliferation of mutual aid societies and mutual support people working with each other and helping each other and finding a way out of nowhere. There's a new worker co-op sprouting up all the time. And there's actually a movement um, among blacks as well as whites to uh, get small proprietors to sell to their employers, employees to sell to their employees and create worker co-ops because they're such much more flexible model. They can survive crises better, that kind of thing. So, there's a big, there's lots of stuff happening even now because I think we're starting to realize that we do have assets even under the worst conditions, right? We have, we all have strengths. We have ideas. We have skills. 
we can work together, we can pull all those things together, and we can make it happen even under the worst conditions. We're in conversation with author, professor of community justice and social economic development in the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College in New York City. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart is with us in conversation. Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperation, the cooperative economic thought and practice is the backdrop of a discussion this evening. Please get involved. If you're thinking about starting a co-op, if you're unclear on the model, if you have any questions, give us a call at 215-490-9832 while uh, Professor Jessica is still with us. Um, we have a program, uh, Professor Jessica, on time for Awakening Media, uh, the West Georgia Farmers Cooperative, and the, and the host mm. is Brother Eric Simpson. And I think he's on the line here. Let's go to LaGrange, Georgia. Are you there? Good up, yes, sir. Good evening. Good evening, Doctor Nemhart. Hey, how you doing, Eric? Hey, yes, sir. Yes, yes, great program, um, Doctor Doctor Jessica. I've seen you a couple of times before. Um, present at at different workshops, and and of course, and I'm one of and you. I'm sure you remember um, the peerless Ralph Page um, yes, during your absolutely. years. Yes, yes, yes. I'm one of. I consider myself one of his. Um, kind of mentees, um, you know, he and I, you know, he was a part of this cooperative, West Georgia Farmers Cooperative, before he went on to do great things for the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. But as, mm-hmm. um, as Brother Elliot was mentioning, um, we're, we do a podcast every Wednesday, um, and the objective of the podcast is just to do that, is to rally the community resources. West Georgia Farmers Cooperative, we've been around since 1966. We just, we're celebrating 55 years this year. Well, and congratulations. Yes, thank you, thank you. And we've seen some good times and some not so good times. We're we're seeing some pretty good times now because we're we we transitioned to fortunately it's been a blessing. We've been trans been able to transition another generation of leadership. So we're on Generation X now. So Generation X is kind of in leadership, and of course, and we're hoping to pass it on to 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 some of our millennial members in the next twenty to thirty years when it's time for us to sit down. But no, we're still farming. We're still growing local food, and we're and, and we're working on a very ambitious project um, that's going to include a credit union, a grocery store, and a commercial share kitchen. And so, oh, sounds great. Yes, ma'am. And Lord willing, uh, we're hoping to bring that online um, December of 2022. And so, um, and I and I really loved and appreciated what you said about sometimes um, these ventures are looked at as failures, but not taken into the historical context of the terrorism and the violence that um that, that these um early brave enterprising men and women were engaging in and, and, and most of these were in rural communities where they had little protections. And so yeah, um so as far as today, um we I I often mention on my program that, that this is a model that the that the black communities are waiting for. And, and unfortunately, it's, um, it's seeming to be a model that we still know very little about. And so just mm-hmm. keeping with principle five, which is ed- education, information, and training, um, what do you think needs to happen to stimulate interest and, um, and revitalization of this, of this model that's been so underutilized in our communities? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to hear about all your successes and plans. That's 
Wonderful. Um, I'm really uh, a proponent of education. I think we need to do education in a variety of ways. I think we need to um, revamp kindergarten <laughs> mm. so that um, we start our kindergarten because I actually feel like kin most kindergartens are kind of beating the cooperation spirit out of children mm -hmm. in order for them to um, to do well in, in public education, right? And instead we should be um, harnessing their natural co-op tendencies and teaching them, right, how to use that. And, you know, the newest pedagogy says that children learn better in groups and working together and stuff rather than in competition and being individualistic and all that. And, you know, so I think we could, you know, not just for economic and spiritual reasons, but even going with the better pedagogy, we could talk about how we really need to start teaching cooperation and teaching children or as I said, harnessing, right, their natural cooperation better um, and rewarding it from kindergarten on. Because I think our real saving grace, as you said, you're able to be in, you know, Generation X at this point with succession planning. We need our young people to be able to come out of the, you know, come out of high school and college ready and interested in the co-op model and rejecting other models, right, saying, I know how to do this, I want to do this. There's fabulous examples of middle school and high school students starting their own co-ops and doing co-ops to address all kinds of issues in their communities. A lot of credit unions have youth um, branches, so the young people running a little mini credit union branch and learning how to do that. Um, we've got, you know, student farmers who are running farm co-ops at, at school or after school. We've got toxic soil busters in Worcester, Massachusetts, who are doing lead abatement landscaping to get lead out of brownfields and soils in their backyards, that kind of thing. And so I think education is really important. And then I think second level of education is adults, right? We need, and we need to adult, uh, educate policymakers, right? So that we can get more policies to support co-op education and financing for co-op. And so I think we also need to do public education. So everybody starts learning about what the co-op model is, what its potential is, how it can be used, what you know what kinds of supports we need to do more co-ops and to create more co-op ecosystems so that's the two places i would start brother eric did you a follow-up question or was that it and i'm also actually in the away. process of creating a graphic novel version of my book so that it's also more accessible to people young people and people who aren't as literate um like me, the, the current come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope next year it'll be out, so I'll let you know. Oh, great, great, great. Uh, Professor Jessica, I know that you said uh, that uh, you had an hour. Do you have a few more minutes, or do you want to um, kind of wind things yeah, down? Yeah, I can go to eight fifteen. I can go. Uh, what is it? Eight or ten more minutes? Good. Okay. Um, and and listen, maybe my final question is dealing with something that you touched on. Uh. Richard touched on it and Eric just touched on it is the need for this to be pushed in our communities. And mm -hmm. Eric talks about the uh, West Georgia, West Georgia farmers cooperative, um, which is dealing with food. Um, I think that we need to adopt these models, whether it's politics, uh, setting up political cooperatives, uh, education, especially now because of COVID 
and things that the people have been doing online in regards to education, especially been, being the children weren't able to go in these schools for longer periods of time. And we know that our children are going to be hit harder by this. It's re- the, the times are really uh, ripe for our people to start these type of models. And it's important to understand what Professor Jessica is saying tonight, that these models are more, uh, uh, how can I say it, uh, more culturally relevant to our people. It's, it's, it's more historic. It, it, it goes more to, to our ethics and culture to start these models as opposed to the European dynamic of everything being in a competition and, uh, um, you know, the money-driven type of thing. It's all right about money, but, you know, the, everything don't, doesn't have to be for profit, especially when you're talking about our communities. Uh, Professor uh, Jessica, just talk about this from the point of view being an educator. The um, Because we have leadership in our communities, political leadership, and we have uh religious leadership. Now, a lot of the churches operate on a cooperative model, I, I would think. I mean, am I right in saying that? Some aspects, yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> right. I mean, in some, you know, there's some aspects that are very hierarchical, but a lot of co-ops, right, do support, you know, credit unions and small co-op activity, um, so there's lots of connections. I've been speaking actually recently. There's a, a whole movement now of um, religious groups to talk more about right the benefits of cooperatives and cooperatives and spirituality and that kind of thing. Um, so there's lots. I think there's lots of potential. Now, now when um, I, now when I said the cooperative model, I'm not, I'm talking about as far as everybody donating. I'm not. I, I'm right. listen. We know the corruption that goes on it, where you know certain people stuff all the money in their pocket. I'm not talking about it from that right. point. Everybody donating, right. But for me, the cooperative model is not, it's two parts, right? Everybody donating, but also everybody making the decisions, right? The okay. democratic part. Okay. So I can't, for me, I can't separate. It's not just that everybody donates, but everybody also helps to decide what happens to it. Okay. And I, and I have to say on that, um, Ali, Go ahead. one point we were, um, we were trying to touch bases with the churches that had credit unions in them and mm-hmm. found it difficult to, you know, thinking that that would be the first leg of, from a community organizing perspective, dealing with sure. and Dunn banks, go to, you know, these established church commu- uh, credit unions. And we just found a little difficulty of getting entrance, even though we had the listing of the different community uh, credit unions that are to, and then looking at the numbers, they're not really large. So the right. question of how they're, uh, how important are they really educating their congregation um, came into question too. Um, is that, is that just an oddity that we ran into or is that something that you've seen? No, it's, it's, it's an issue. There's a couple of issues. A lot of the really sort of, Religious-based and community-based credit unions are very small and kind of struggling to stay in business, and so it's it's very hard to organize them politically around doing more about co-op education and the co-op community because they're just trying to to keep making it. And actually, the federal government, the federal regulators, are actually trying to make those small 
co-op credit unions merge with larger ones. And so they're sort of under assault. So right now it's not the best strategy. However, the whole black credit union movement is actually really interesting. There's a whole group called African-American Credit Union, AACUC, the African-American Credit Union Coalition, which is a coalition of uh, black, either black owned credit unions or black employees in credit unions. Um, so that's, it's probably a better place to go. And there's also a very progressive group of community development credit unions, which are often brown and black people. And that's, I think it's called Inclusive is the name of their trade association. So sometimes it's you've got to start with the larger associations, which is where sort of the activity is, um, because some of the credit unions, they're just trying to exist day to day. And some of the small co-ops, it's the same thing. It's harder to organize those people because they're just trying to survive. But if you get with the trade associations that are the larger national or regional groups with the people who have time to think about movement building and connections, that's sometimes where it's easier. The other thing I was gonna say, I think you were asking at the beginning of this question about sort of 21st century, what is co-op development look like? And I was gonna say, you know, co-ops are so flexible that really any, um, you can have a co-op to solve any economic problem. Mm -hmm. And now with um, there's what's called um, uh, co-op platform, platform co-ops in the digital world. That's like actually Uber, if Uber was owned by all the drivers, that would be a platform co-op. So the notion is that the platform, the digital platform, the software, the way the digital platform works, if that could be owned collectively, you could do all kinds of things. So right now there's a, um, a, a digital photographer's platform where a bunch of photographers all own the platform and then you just, you know, you go into the platform and upload your pictures and one of the groups handles your order or whatever. New York City has a digital platform now for finding a worker co-op uh, cleaning company. Up and go, it's called. So all the worker co-op cleaning companies in New York City are part of this platform. All you have to do if you want a service is sign up on the platform and they connect you with one of the worker co-ops to come and clean your house. Um, and so there's, you know, that's a way to kind of connect groups, even if we still, you know, need to depend on the internet more than face-to-face um, -face kind of stuff. So there's, you know, it's just so many possibilities once you think about co-op models. There's so many possibilities for how to do it, you know, as you said, for politicians, for healthcare, for health insurance, for mm -hmm. teaching in schools, for factories, for um, sex worker, worker co-ops have been doing great stuff to, uh, you know, to upgrade, upgrade and dignify the work. I'm also studying, looking at worker co-ops for incarcerated people while they're still in prison. And um, just, you know, the model is just endless in terms of ways you can apply it once you understand those principles and values of how to structure it. Professor Jessica Nimhard gordon I want to thank you for your work and what you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of groups, and listen, Richard moves around a lot more than me, and some of the groups that I'm familiar with use your book as a template to what they're doing and forming uh, these these uh, groups richard yeah yeah I'm, I'm, and i'm i'm wanting to um deal with um 
the uh, Peace Park, you know, as far as because they're they're working in a group farm and they're, they've expanded to um, land, you know, um, acquiring like five lands and putting on an educational where they're doing, you know, farming, um, you know, urban farming and creating an educational institution. So the co-op mm -hmm. model would fit right with them as far as the future. Right. So um, I, 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 and as you, as you bring up these things, I, it just means that uh, Elliot, um, if she's open, I know this is a busy woman, you know, moving around and all that kind of stuff, you know how that go. We got to get you back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Give, give me a, uh, give me a few months, but let's okay. think about some dates. October is actually co-op month, good. So I might be able to fit you in in October, or you know, um, we can think about yeah. But I'm happy to come back again, and we can talk more detail. Good. Looking forward to you coming back, and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Talk to you soon. We're going to take a brief break, and uh, we're going to transition into open forum the rest of the way. You can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services if when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. 
abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Commit to You Black family, to join your interconnected Commit to You Black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issues, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. Since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on this blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you.
put the present Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. The whites were evenly divided. It was the fact that you threw 80% of your votes behind the Democrats that put the Democrats in the White House. The, when you see this, you can see that the Negro vote is the key factor. And despite the fact that you are in a position to, to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. A political chump. The party that you backs controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government, and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time, and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Welcome back. <laughs> the time for an awakening. Uh, I want to thank our guest that was spent some time with us this evening. Author and professor of community justice and social economic development in the Department of African Studies at John Jay College in New York. Professor Jessica Gordon-Nimhart was with us this evening. The book, Collective Courage, A History of African American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. If any of our audience doesn't have that book, please get it. Uh, start a book club. Talk about it with your family, your friends, anybody that's interested in starting some type of collective co-op. Please get that book. And if you you heard her conversation, her impetus for starting and writing that book was the book that W.B. Du Bois put out, The Economic cooperation among Negro Americans, which was printed in 1907. Get both of the books, please. Uh, I think it's important. Richard, uh, give me your thoughts on, I guess, before we kind of transition into open form. You know, I, I, so, you know, as you said, Elliot, um, in, in going through her work and trying to, us trying to resolve how do we deal with um, development? It, you know, the, the cooperative is like really powerful, but this, which you, you did ask her and, you know, cause she stated when that, that point of, we don't do cooperatives. Now I believe these were black elected officials and I usually don't, I mean, I'll leave that to you. Right. But are you um, talking about who said that to her? Yeah. 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 And she I, said, uh, groups, uh, elected officials, several of them. I mean, it was like a cross section. Mm -hmm. responded to her saying, we don't do co-ops, but go ahead. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, what, what gets me is, and the other point was that, you know, that's so easy to promote in our community, which I don't hear. And from a public policy perspective, from an urban development perspective, and she, she, she made that point of the public education, right? The, of the pedagogy of being able to start a kindergarten which makes sense, right? To be able to share and create 
that 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 human capital that asset it just makes sense and i don't hear these guys um um bringing that up and and i don't understand why i mean what does it cost them i i, I just you know at the devastation of our community and that's why i wanted to because i when we hear about hr 40 and 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 you know reparations i don't hear cooperatives as a mechanism of 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 a of a repair when we have all this history well that's the key richard you just said it a lot of our well i ain't gonna say a lot it's a percentage of our people and I think in, in areas, maybe the percentage is larger than others. It's a percentage of our people that don't know our history. It's clear that they don't. You heard her say, and then see, it's different if me and you talk about it, Richard. But that's why I always like to bring people, and both of us, bring people on this program that are activists. And when I say activists, whether they're columnists, whether they're college professors, whether they're authors, it, people that are active in the community doing something. She traveled all around and she said, talking to black people in particular. And her response was, we don't do co-ops. So you don't know your history. That's why I was trying to get her to explain the history of this. She said it comes from the continent. You heard her say it on the program. Mm -hmm. So if these principles come from the continent and all we know it's some type of uh, capitalist uh, get yours and I'll get like like some of the comments that was made in past programs about, uh, you know, it's the, I'm going to get mine and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. If that's all we know, then we don't know our history. And it's killing our people. Because when we adopt these principles among ourselves to make all the money I can, I'm going to make a million dollars and this and that and the other. And then we see all this stuff. This system waves black people like that in front of other black people, like it's some type of carrot in front of your face. When we see those models like that, this stuff is killing our people. It's killing our communities. When we should be adopting uh, more cultural principles, these models she's talking about come straight from the continent. And we can use them, just like she said, in several different aspects, whether it's food, education, politics, it's it 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 spans the gamut, Richard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to start up these think tanks in every city, community groups, book clubs. Read these books, discuss them among your family and friends, and interested parties that want to start these groups. We got to educate ourselves. You okay. you heard her say, Richard, that most of these regular businesses fail at a higher rate than co-ops. Yeah. I, I, that's the first time I really heard that. I mean, that is the first time. I mean, 10 times. You know? Wow. We have, to, we have to get, you know, that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm this, as a, uh, uh, as some would call an armchair revolutionary, I'm, I'm, I'm adamant that because of the points that you made, um, as far as the cultural re- and historical retention, the cultural continuity, I'm an advocate that we need to organize ourselves around these co-ops. But you know that that puts a, that system, and and that's why what she also said about the sabotage, you know, um, which I'm glad that she brought that up because that was one of the things that I seen in when in her section about benefits and lessons learned. Um, there were many examples of that sabotage 
but she has you know stated and she she brought that up and therefore we have to be able to prepare and sabotage don't come just in a physical mom or you know exactly flaws mm-hmm. that's why I, that's why i use you know when i gave her that those two examples the freedman's bank they didn't attack freedman's bank like they attacked the colored farmers mm-hmm. but they attacked them politically they use other means to attack them and take black folks money and what came to my mind was the recent thing about the um, um, the black farmers getting money, you know, um, was that it was at um, through um, the um, one of those that the agricultural department, and then the white farmers and the uh, banks said, "Hold up, that's sabotage." Hmm. You know, they they're working as a collective. And farmers, but here the and and getting something due to them, and then something some other group is preventing them to getting the resources in order to develop. You know, I, I, I just so just being prepared for that um, also is, has to be incorporated when we're talking about building these co-ops that ha- has the ability to she said to provide. Uh, Abundance compared to scarcity that we can have in our community a, perce- a perception and, and reinforce abundance compared to scarcity, which is what they make. You know, you hear like, I got to get mine because if, if I don't get it, you're going to get it. <laughs> and that that thought and practice is killing our people mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. Richard, um, and based on some of the things, you know, because in, in her book, she talks about, and this is, this is why I mentioned about the different co-ops and, and, and the, whether uh, Brother Eric called up about the West Georgia, which is food. Uh, in her book, she mentions Ella Baker came out, came out of, of a political cooperative. Right, right, right. I was going to bring, bring that up. The uh, black woman involved, is that that's what it, but that was, that was her, um, Major thing starting out is in a co-op. Yes. See, but we don't have those things among our community now. Other people in other interest groups and sometimes other religious groups develop black candidates in black communities. Look at that stuff that I read about what was going on in New York. Is Eric Adams pledging his allegiance basically to Israel. I mean, who cultivated him? He might have came from the black community. And was in black groups doing different stuff. Yeah, but his interest, he didn't already stated where his interest lies. So we can't, we can't keep doing this. I think that one clip that I played, Mr. Furcon says, we can't keep passing this struggle down to generation after generation. We can't keep doing this. And it is killing. It is killing. Because each generation think that they should be operating as individuals in, a, in, a, in an environment of scarcity to where the point, as you say, we're killing each other at a younger and younger age, you know, um, over what? But yeah, I, 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 it's, uh, and when you brought up about, you know, Israel, I, I don't want to, but you 
know, I just seen that the AU is um, giving uh, Israeli uh, uh, Israel Israel a uh, what's that what they call it? Um, they'll be able to have a standing in in the AU. And I said, and see that Richard, and and see sometimes when our people talk about that, they talk about it in the abstract. For example, mm-hmm. they'll see ty- they'll see headlines like that and say. Oh boy, look what's going on on the continent. These African people are doing this, that, and the other. So, but it's it's the leadership. Mm-hmm. The leadership has been co-opted. It's the same thing here. When they see these people that's supposed to be black leaders uh, uh, acquiescing to other people, people in other countries can say the same thing about you. Look at those black people there. They do this and that. It's the leadership. The black people that live in these neighborhoods, grassroots people, they need help. They see these people doing this stuff, and in, in, uh, whether it's religious groups, uh, so-called white liberals, or, or special interests, these black leaderships acquiescing to these people. They don't go along with it. Some some folks, a percentage of them, continue to vote for them, but they don't go along with this type of stuff. And we go through the same merger around. I mean, uh, a percentage of black people put this guy in office, and look at what's happening. The same thing. Malcolm just said this thing is broken down into liberals and conservatives, and he said that almost 60 years ago. That the liberals have perfected the art of being the, friend, the Negro's friend and benefactor. We're going to do this, we're going to do that, and then it's the political football starts, and then nothing, you don't get nothing. Except for, except for the... Uh... The military knocking on your door talking about you better get a shot. Wow. <laughs> you know, let me let me share a couple of these articles, Richard, uh, that was came in published reports um, to kind of reinforce the conversation that we had this evening and show the need that we have to do something in reference to our children. Uh, let me read this. Texas Senate advances bills limiting education about race. Uh, the House is still sidelined. Uh, even though the Texas Democrats have effectively sidelined the House in hopes of blocking uh, a voter restriction bill, the Senate is nearing the end of its work on uh, priorities for a special legislative session. On Friday, senators passed a bill that would strip requirements that students learn white supremacy is morally wrong. And and another that would, uh, excuse me, hold up, is, is morally wrong. Unless even though Democrats return to Texas to again allow the House to pass legislation, the Senate bills uh, won't do much to help the measure become law. But since the special session began last week, uh, the upper chamber has quickly passed 12 bills that has spurred House Democrats' departure. The Senate has already passed bills that would make it harder for incarcerated people to get out of jail without cash. Uh, We've passed these bills, the bail bonds bills and other bills, now for the second time, says Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, said before calling recess on the Senate floor Friday. We will pass it a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time. We'll stay here until it gets done. When more than 51 Democrats left the state Monday, they left the House without a quorum. Uh, The minimum number of lawmakers 
that must be present in order to conduct business. Uh, they vowed to stay out of the state until the House proceedings, until the end of the special session on August 6th. In an interview with the Texas Standard earlier this week, Abbott said he will call a special session after special session until the legislation items are passed. On Friday, the upper chamber passed Senate Bill 3 by 18 to 4 vote that would strip out the upcoming requirements created by the reg- regular session and it critical race theory. And that's the students learn that white supremacy is morally wrong. Uh, the previous bill lists documents, figures, and events that must be included in social studies curriculum that will be stripped. Uh, that includes more than two dozen requirements that Native American history work by civil rights activists, uh, writings by Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass. Also expands a restriction on how current events of, of American history of racism can be taught in schools from social studies to all teachers. Uh, said that the bill is a layout of broad concepts and not a doctorate curriculum. So, listen, Richard, we see here that they don't want things discussed in their schools in relation to what Europeans have done since they've been here on this continent. But that doesn't restrict black people from discussing these things and using the schools and and, uh, homes and community centers to become education hubs in our communities. Give me your feelings on that, Richard. And, and, yeah, I mean, I mean, this gets into the strict tactical moves that we can be able to use in order to deal with um, organizing our community. We are, you know, and I, you know, I use just the two, the libraries and the community centers. Can you, I mean, to, to have collective courage going on in every library and community center um, um, dealing with co-ops, that's, you know, that's the basis of bringing people together and then being able to even do with Zoom and other virtual things as an organizing tool. Um, it, it's, it's there. It's on us, you know, and it's on a lot more of us who, who, as uh, Sister Cynthia McKinney say, who are standing on the sideline to come forward, you know, because they know they hear that voice in their head of what they can do instead of just standing on the sideline talking about look at what's being done and how much they know about what's being done. And, as you know, that's, that's, that's what I see. I mean, it's right there um, that where we can um, take advantage and use our tax dollars and not have to be waiting for somebody to tell us that we're going to give you a program or we're, we're going to give you some money um, to do this. You can be advocating for these things. Uh, um, so now, now after uh, uh, Texas uh, passed this thing and he, and you noticed before uh, Richard, because you had been involved in education with several charter schools, that the stuff that happens in Texas in regards to textbooks, goes all over the country because I think they're the largest distributor of textbooks, aren't they? Yeah, well, I've heard I've heard that. And then I looked it up and I seen New York. Well, the company that I thought was um, the major one is based in New York. But it seems that Texas 
um, also is a um, company that comes out of Texas too. Yeah, but a, but a lot of these the point I'm raising, a lot of these uh, uh, things that's happening negatively to black folks are coming oh. out of these systems, and and it spreads all over. Now, we see here that they passed this bill, and uh, the governor said that they're going to go back to special sessions to a third, fourth, or fifth, and the sixth time until it's passed uh, to limit uh, this critical race theory. They don't want uh, saying that uh, white supremacy was morally wrong. Uh, they want to limit uh, writings by King and, and uh, uh, Frederick Douglass. So they want to monitor basically what black children are taught. Mm-hmm. Now, let me read this. Now, this come out of the Kansas City Star a couple of days ago, July 21st. The headline or the header says, no black parents, teachers, or scholars invited to Missouri, Missouri hearing on teaching race. Mm-hmm. Now, this is in Missouri, not Texas. It says a Missouri legislative committee on Monday held a hearing held hearings on how educators are to teach K-12 students about race and racism without hearing from any black Missourians. No black parents, no black teachers, no scholars testified in the Joint Committee on Education during the invite-only hearings on critical race theory. Aside from the official from Missouri Education Department, the only people who testified Monday were critics of critical race theory, which uh, is a way of thinking about American history through the lens of racism. Uh, uh, The talks, the talks more, uh, wait a minute, I'm losing my place here. Republican Cindy O'Laughlin, who leads the committee, says she wanted to use a hearing to highlight voices of people upset about critical race theory who have said local schools Officials ignored their complaints. O'Laughlin says she invited an associate professor, professor of teaching who specialized in black history, but he declined to testify. I guess that meant she invited a black person, but he didn't want to come. Uh, she said later there will be more committee hearings on critical race theory and more opportunities for the public to weigh in. Heather Fleming, a former Missouri teacher, who now offers uh, inclusion training, says that she wanted to testify on Monday, but was not allowed. She Mm -hmm. said, without any African-Americans involved in the discussion, you're talking about us without us. Uh, What what not having any African-Americans in the room really showed was this wasn't really about understanding, says Fleming. Scholars developed critical race theory during the 70s and 80s in response to what they viewed as a lack of racial progress following the civil rights legislation of the 60s. Uh, This has recently become a political lightning rod. Uh, Many view these concepts underlying critical race theory as an effort to rewrite American history and persuade white people that they are inherently racist and should feel guilty because of their advantages. Some students have serious emotional problems dealing with critical race theory or social justice concepts being taught in our schools, says Katie Rash, a leader in the Missouri chapter of the group No Left Turn in Education. She testified on the committee Monday. So we see here that the legislation was passed last 
Monday or last week in Texas, they held hearings now leading to when they held the hearings, when they hold these hearings, that leads to legislation. So you see political, they held political uh, hearings in Missouri on the same topics. And this one, no black, and I'm going to read the header again, no black parents, no black teachers, no scholars invited to the hearing. But <laughs> I mean, what does that tell black people? And especially the ones that keep talking about, you know, we can be do this together. We need allies. What is that telling you? What is this telling you? When you see this, I'm just curious, I, you know, and maybe somebody that believes that we can call the program. Tell me what when they see these things happening across the country, not in isolated places. This is across the country. What is that telling you in reference to how they want you to be in this society? I remember that uh, the, uh, clip that I played uh, uh, about two weeks before Dr. King was murdered. That guy interviewed him and asked him. What do you think that white folks want black people to be? You remember that clip I played, Richard? I got to try to find that and, and, and uh, play his response. But what is that telling our people about how they feel about you? And they're still monitoring what they want you to learn. That's a master-slave relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else is it? Maybe you can help me with that. I, it's, and, and, and I hope people understand what they're doing is they're prepping for the next generation so that they have no idea. We're talking about now people don't have the history. They will have no idea. They're taking things that was, you know, we were talking about we we had Frederick Douglass or, you know, or everybody 10 years ago was saying Martin Luther King. But they're saying those people will be not even mentioned if I'm if I'm hearing you right. Well, I mean, that's what they're saying their writings was, was going to be censored or stricken. Mm-hmm. So I guess the only thing that you'll hear in reference to King is, I have a dream. That seems like the thing that liberals and so-called conservatives, uh, and I don't even want to deal with that, they all, that's American politics. Mm-hmm. That seems like the only thing that white folks can agree upon. Uh, I have a dream. The thing that gets me is, as you were reading that, it's, it's interesting, especially as it was dealing with um, Texas, is the trade-off between, um, as they're pushing this, um, um, Black politicians at the national level is pushing voters' rights. So it makes me wonder, is is there a trade-off that they're willing to make? Uh, yeah, so we'll have the right to vote. You can erase, you can erase our memory or our mechanism of doing critical analysis or bring presenting people who have made critical analysis as the, as the basis of how race plays in um, this society, because I don't, I haven't heard, maybe you have, um, there been a, a great outcry, political outcry by the congressional black caucus, by the state, um, the national black state, uh, uh, caucus of black state of black legislators or you know any anyone um making that this here what's being presented is going to have a negative effect on black children as a as a part of their educational development as far as specifically looking at black children i haven't heard that but i've heard them continue to push about we got to get um was that hr1 uh passed and so it makes me wonder, is this a trade-off? 
you know, uh, Richard, I got this, uh, it was an article in, uh, the daily beast that I want to find and, and, uh, get your assessment on and your opinion in reference to, uh, to what's stated here. And it's, and they're talking about, uh, New York city politics, uh, And maybe we can get Brother Maurice or something to call up in reference to it. Because it was an interesting article in this Daily Beast uh, in reference to uh, the political environment now in New York. Um, I want to find that, too, because I want to share it with the listening audience and with you. Because I want your opinions on what this uh, this brother uh, writes in here. Uh, in fact, I might try to get the man on. Because it's interesting to what he's saying. And it's a... It's an interesting discussion for black people that's keeping the scorecard on what's going on with these people because they do affect, and I'm talking about black politicians, uh, some things that they do affect our lives here, and it definitely affects our struggle. Mm. So I, I, get, I'm going to take a brief break. I'm going to find this article because I thought I had it laid here. I must have put it in another location. I, I want to share this with the listening audience to hear what this brother's saying about the the political landscape in New York now and uh and get your thoughts on it. We're gonna take a brief break and when we come back we'll continue the discussion. We see a couple calls that popped on, we'll get them involved too. We're in open forum the rest of the way. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. 
RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu Black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu Black communities, escape the digital plantation now, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color, and that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you'd better think again. You're out of your mind and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass.
and we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. You are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. Part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 902 in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, and we're in open form the rest of the way. You can get involved in the conversation if you choose to by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Richard. Yes, yes. Uh, let me share this uh, article with you and the listening audience because I want your feedback on it. Um, and we got a couple calls before we kind of wind things down. And uh, I got to get Charles Barron back on here because I need his perspective yeah. on what yeah. this brother's yeah. writing. It's interesting what he's saying here, Richard. Uh, but, um, well, let me let me share it and get your opinion. Uh there's a brother named Roger House wrote this for the Daily Beast, and he put he published it today. It says uh, the title of it is "Here's What Eric Adams and, and, and New York City's New Black Leadership Need to Do." It says by November, black politicians will hold an unprecedented 
unprecedented number of offices in New York City. And the likelihood of the Democratic nominee Eric Adams becoming the city's 110th mayor and the second black mayor will add a crucial executive seat to the mix of legislative, judicial, and party positions. Yet there are questions about how this new black political class will use its power. Can individual electoral achievements be translated into a broader agenda for the community development? Is this class of politicians capable of seizing the moment and promoting an agenda of empowerment that elude, that eluded an earlier generation of leaders? Or will it simply be another episode of office holding by savvy black politicos by savvy politicos who happen to be black. As Amos Wilson, a former historian and social psychologist in the City University of New York, sagely cautioned a prior political class of thinkers, his quote was, as long as African-American community is relatively weak, so will be its representatives, no matter how high their office. The November election is poised to send black men to the office of mayor and Manhattan district attorney. This means Eric Adams and Alvin Bragg, respectively, will join a bench of city leaders uh, that includes state assemblymen, uh, state attorney general, uh, public advocate uh, office, uh, Queensboro president, Add this to the black legislators who hold a number of seats, city council, and the state assembly. It says, uh, they are the inheritors of the political history of blacks in New York City. It is a history of relative marginalization with roots in the mass migration to Harlem during World War I. The black population of New York grew about group to about 65% and fostered an enclave in the once white neighborhood. In 1930, Harlem had about 328,000 black residents, making up 6% of the city's population. They were represented by Tammy, by white, uh, white uh, Democrats under uh, leadership of Carmine, Decepio, the ward boss and reputed gangster. It took many years before the community was represented by its own. And this was uh, J. Raymond Jones, the Harlem Fox. He was a West Indian immigrant who came to the city during the war and became active in the Carver Democratic Club and won election to city council. Under his guidance, the community nurtured its own representation, but not necessarily an independent politic. Jones mentored a new class of young leaders that included Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Percy Sutton, Basil Peterson, uh, Robert Weaver, Charles Rangel, and David Dinkins. All would go on to hold positions in state and federal government, and Dinkins, part of Harlem's famous Gang of Four, along with Sutton, Patterson, and Rangel, his last surviving member, would make history as the city's first 
and so far only black mayor. The story of Jones is chronicled in uh, a book called The Harlem Fox. Despite of emergence of this new black political class, it remained unduly subject to white Democratic Party overseers. One reason was the vulnerability of the small communities in a hostile city. Another was the limited economic and education capital in the communities. One trend was towards African-centered community activism, advanced by figures like Reverend Herbert Daughtry and his House of Lord Pentecostal Church in Brooklyn. His National Black United Front engaged many community organizations but failed to wed the activist agenda to the political structure of municipal governance. Another trend was towards an alliance with predominantly white liberal Democrats in support of class-based remedies. The problem with this approach, however, was the disproportionate social, political, and economic power that blacks had among their white allies. Eric Adams and the current political class are the inheritors of this legacy. Unlike earlier times, though, black voters now compromise 26% of the population and play a swing role in city politics. As a voting bloc, they are competitive with the city's 33% white population, 26% Latino population, and 13% Asian population, according to the Furman uh, Center. For this new political class, the challenge is to use the tools of office in a coordinated fashion to advance an agenda of black development. Now, he got some points here, Richard. Check out these points. First, political leaders must prioritize an innovative black wealth creation agenda. They should use the district office resources and church relations to engage people to shift checking and savings accounts to financial institutions like Carver Federal Savings Bank. This would increase capital availability for loans to applicants for businesses, for homes, for autos, for bank cards. It would enable the historic black bank to bolster hiring and operational resources. In turn, the bank would work with the community organizations to educate people on ways to budget, save, invest, and become viable homeowners. Second, leaders should promote a campaign for employment in the skilled fields of the growth industries. They should engage with workforce authorities to run community seminars and online tutorials to expand opportunities for apprenticeships and municipal agencies and commercial vendors. Third, leaders should use community networks to to support black-owned businesses. It should be aimed at directing the flow of community dollars to their own merchants and artisans. Fifth, leaders must use the bully pulpit to reinforce the black family. In particular, there's an urgent need for attention to the mean uh, financial standing of black men due to the generational and systematic racism. 
women have endured many economic outrages as well. But the uplift of men is critical to supporting the needs of children and women. Too often left to carry an undue share of the family's economic obligations. Now, this brother writes, writes an interesting article, Richard, mm-hmm. about thing, and he gives some points. I read four of them because I skipped number four. I read one to five that they should adopt this black agenda and use city resources and the bully pulpit because we talked about that before. Because blacks claim they can't do something, but they don't use that bully pulpit to at least blow the whistle and let other blacks know what's going on. This man incorporates that in his articles. He said, use your office to direct money to black banks. Use your office uh, to support black-owned businesses and tell the community to direct dollars towards merchants and artisans. And use the fifth, it says, use the bully pulpit to reinforce the black family. You see all these? Now, this brother writes an interesting article. The thing is, will they do this? Because you done already heard funny tones coming out, of, and especially Adams. I didn't share some of his comments about what he plans to do publicly. He's made these comments public about his allegiance towards Jews and to Israel. I don't know what that has to do with him being mayor of New York City in a city that's a, a devoting block is, is almost uh, it's, it's split. You see the percentages. 26%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll read it again because uh, it, 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 and it, and it mentions that the black vote is, is the swing vote in the city. I'll read those percentages again. It says black voters now compromise over 26% of the popul- voting population and play a swing role in city politics. As a voting block, they are competitive with the city's 33% white population, 26% Latino, and 13% Asian. So you're right there. Mm-hmm. But all of these black neighborhoods don't control the economy of their communities. That's what he's saying, that these men should adopt an agenda to help blacks control the economy of their communities and thereby helping black families strengthen themselves. Put that on your scorecards, people, and especially the ones that live in New York. you got to hold these people accountable. Listen, I can give my own opinions. I don't think they're going to do it. In fact, mm-hmm. if I was a betting man, I bet that they won't do it mm-hmm. because they've been put in office by other people. You can see it. These people have been put in office. I think one is it's a it's a, uh, it, uh, uh, LGBTQ candidate that went in New York that was black. So you can see that other these other uh, whether it's religious groups, uh, 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 special interest groups, or white liberals in general have put these blacks in office. And he did it for a reason. And it's not to help you. So the brother writes an interesting article, but I don't I don't see where they're going to follow this agenda. But I'd like to get to maybe pick his brain. I'm going to try to reach out to him to get him on, Richard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because i like to see uh, if my thinking lines up. LGBTQ. I'm sorry, go ahead. Say that again, Richard. I was saying I would like to see if my thinking lines up what, what, um, and what he lays out, those four or five points they laid out. Um, so, uh, um, I, I just, you know, the question that comes to my mind is who are these, and, 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 and he did a good article in laying out the two different camps, right? Um, 
the ones that were um, grounded in the community. Yeah. They just able to make that connection. But the ones who were um, in aligned with whites and 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 that gener you know the the second generation, the second or third generation of political leadership, you know, they're now um, in abundance mm -hmm. um, in this position. So if they haven't been working on um, the areas that he were laid out, will they be able to work on that and get their constituency or will they be satisfied with, and because I'm operating off of this notion that right now the black, the black middle income, upper middle income is driving the political direction in this moment. And that they, and if they get satisfied, that will be satisfactory for the white um, political and economic establishment. How do, how do I say this? Um, if more black children are able, more black of the black um, upper income are able to go to black HBCUs, they'll be satisfied. If more who have uh, certain skill sets that um, are able to get into these political uh, arenas, whether by bureaucratic jobs or whatever, I mean, I'm talking about the skilled arena, uh, they'll be satisfied. But will that do anything for the masses of black folks, I don't think so, because that that part of the, the, the primarily the black family, because the black family needs a lot of work in order to be or or black men, right? That, it needs a lot of work in order to deal with that cultural transition to be a um, thriving community, and so that if they ain't doing that already, I don't see how they can. Um, move in the political time frame that they have. What, the mayor got four years? Mm -hmm. I don't know. In New York, what's the, you know, for these new guys coming in, what are they, they've been involved in politics a while. So if they haven't been setting the groundwork, and that's why I would like to hear um, Brother Barron, you know, because in hearing him and what he's doing, he set the structural, he, he elaborates of the structural groundwork that he set within his district and the development that's going on. So he could be only be building on that. Yeah. And, and I wonder, do any of them attend to work with him right. to team up with him to do a cooperative economic model for the rest of the city and based on what he did in the community, which would, which would be expanding that process into other areas, which he said they were, those who were already there weren't um, willing to work exactly and his approach. So we, we know that, well, th that there is some, a difference of strategy, you know, um, already occurred. So that that's, and, and the only, and, and I would be looking for um, in talking to the, cause, and I don't know if people will give me pushback. The thing is that what black people need is for the government to transfer their um, revenue um, outlays into black communities. So how many government um, deposits will go into Calvary? I ain't talking about private, um, you know, ownership. I'm talking about 
like the water department um, on payroll, the tax department, they, they get revenue coming in and they get millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. What does that do? How, how is that different than trying to get black people who only have a certain amount of income, disposable income to put in a bank? What did that do in relationship to getting a large amount that they can leverage in being able to maybe get deal with um, other assets, community assets, and usually banks, what they go into um, buying and developing real estate, right? That's that that would be um, black businesses. You know, how many? What's the what's the expansion of black contracts? And, and I ain't talking about no, you know, these flight heart. New York got New York is doing a whole lot of building. New York um, has a whole lot. So what are the contracts? Because if black um, businesses get government contracts, not no set aside of ten percent or fifteen, but uh, more government contracts, then what will they be able to do with government contracts? They will be able to hire more black people. Exactly. Compared to looking at trying to black businesses competing with mature white businesses that are already out there, that is already capitalized. <laughs> right? That's now that is using your political uh will to direct, you know, the political machinery to do more than probably what it has been doing, especially when we look at it for Philadelphia. Because how long we've we been talking about in Philadelphia, they haven't been get doing, um, giving these black businesses haven't been getting government contracts. Yeah, and and they and they uh, have quote unquote control of a lot more political offices in Philadelphia than they do in New York. I'm talking about black folks. Mm. Let's. Uh, Grab a few of these calls before we mount these down. Let's go to six seven eight. Six seven eight. Six seven eight got his ready on. Let's go to three one four in Missouri. Three one four. Hey guys, I enjoy your show as usual. No worries, sir. Hey, I'm doing fine. Hey, a couple of things. I think uh a couple of things I want to point out. I've been listening to you guys all night. Uh I know you touched on the critical race theory. Uh, I live in one of the largest school districts on the St. Louis side of the state of Missouri. Uh, they had a board meeting on the critical race theory. And uh, I, I came away from the meeting that the, most most of what I thought it was, was this is simply just a head fake by uh, white constituents to uh, get away from voting issues, uh, the rights voters' rights issues. One of the, one of the participants asked, he said, asked a question, he says, can you name any school in this district that teaches critical race theory? And the audience went silence. And finally somebody said, well, I understand they're gonna start teaching it. So they pulled out a curriculum and say, this is not even being taught. So it was it's more of a, a, a Republican head fake to try to get away from other issues is what I perceived it as. So uh, I, I think this is this will, as the election's on, some of this will die. And the other thing I, I came away from it was, was that, uh, my my problem with critical race theory is not not I don't have a problem with critical race theory. My problem is that if Richard family has a story, who better able to tell Richard's family story than Richard? 
And I think we as African-Americans sometimes put people in charge of telling the story of our history. The Jews tell their own story. Uh, the Arabs tell their own story. The Chinese tell their own story. But we want a school district, uh, in my case, uh, a predominantly white school district, to tell oh, my daughters the stories of black America. And I've always taken it upon myself to tell them the story of black history and to teach them. You know, I think it's from a biblical perspective to hand down uh, the the, the 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 stories of your people to your children and not rely upon and I, you know not rely upon some white person or chinese person who has a bs in black history to try to tell my kids a story of black history because only person going to tell it right is going to be me mm-hmm. so i I'll, i always favor that point and, and i i really just don't rely on the system to teach black history uh, i think there's some that teach as well but most teach it they don't teach it well and i and i'll give you an example I have learned more about black history by listening to programs like Time for Awakening and listening to some of the people they have on that than you will ever learn in some of the schools because it's not going to be there. You cannot find those individuals with that type of in-depth knowledge to pass that information along. And the information has to be passed on correctly because once you start specializing in lies, it really doesn't become history. It just becomes a bad story or fable is what happens. Uh, the second point I, want, I wanted to make real quick was Richard was right head on point when he said the upper black middle class is running the political, uh, the black political agenda. And the problem that I have with that is that they do not recognize nor understand what is going on with the total black community. Mm-hmm. If you're upper middle class, your kids don't necessarily uh, uh, communicate with kids from other neighborhoods. You don't have you don't go through that process. You get in office. And you begin to put, uh, support an agenda that's predominantly an upper middle class white agenda is what you what you actually do. And you say, well, there is some racism there, but you don't see it the way other people see it. Uh, and I think that's the paradigm shift that's taking place in the black community that has to be stopped. Uh, there has to be a connection between those two groups to understand, because you cannot represent a people that you don't understand. And most of the black politicians do not understand <clears throat> what is going on in the inner city. They really don't. Uh, I know in Ferguson, they really don't understand what's going on in the, in the inner city. It's a whole different avenue. Uh, I own a business in St. Louis, uh, LA, and when Richard talks about bringing, he talk, when the article talks about bringing economics into the uh, community, mm-hmm. I have people that are second generations, second generations, and sometimes going on third generations, LA, that have never had a banking account. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you know, if I give them the money to say, let's do economic development, they don't understand it. Now, I bring in individuals into my business to show them how to open up a bank account. Now, you got three generations, two generations, and we're saying they've been going to a check cash in place. Mm-hmm. They've been uh, living off a card, a bank, uh, you know, a, a, a little revenue card, and have no idea of a checking account nor how to write a check. When you get a people like that, you're financially illiterate. And the system will eat you up. If you can't do basic banking, it will eat you up. If you give that money to somebody, it's like giving it to a kid, it's going to eat them up. Because if you got it on a card, you're going to spend it on a card. So I, I think we have to dig real deep down, real deep down, and meet people where they're at and not assume that all of us uh, understand exactly uh, the whole framework of what is going on. Uh, I was at a program at my church today, and all these kids were getting awards and scholarships. 
they were going to medical schools, top universities, Ivy League schools. They were going to black universities, HBCUs too. Some of them were coming out of medical school, and all these kids were black. And I asked myself, how many of these kids who grew up in West St. Louis County understand what's going on in the St. Louis city? They don't. They've never been there. They have no idea. They are almost upper-middle-class white kids with a black face. Wow. So that, 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 that break between us and those in the city, uh, those in the inner city, it's getting wider and wider and wider. And, and we're becoming almost two different people, and that's the shame about it is because there's no leadership to bring it together. I mean, you have to have a representative from each side. You have to representative. If you're a politician, you need a representative to represent this group of African-Americans, this group of African-Americans, and this. we have to represent them like constituents because we can't do it like all black people have the same needs. In some cases, they do, but in some cases, they're thinking on, they're doing things on a different level. So you got to be able to represent them, but you can't represent them if you don't know what they're doing. And I, when I got out of corporate America and bought a business, I had an eye opener. I thought all of us was doing certain things. And when I started meeting my people in my company, I was like, wow, where have we been? And I had a meeting when I said, we can't move forward like this as a people. There are some things you got to have in place. You got to have banking in place. You got to understand certain things. You can't do this. That's why they're taking advantage of you. So we have our work cut out, and there's no defined leadership. I don't hold leadership accountable when you when I know they don't know. I think we're accountable when we put them in office. If they're not acting right, get them out. We had a politician in office that just lost out to Cory Bush, Lacey Clay. Lacey Clay was absolutely incompetent. But we voted him in. They voted him in every time. They voted him in every time because he said his dad marched with Martin Luther King and his dad was a politician. So that was good enough for us. He passed the black test and, and they put him in office. And blacks uh, in St. Louis have been struggling back and forth. And I'll say this, the final thing I'm saying. After all the incidents that took place in Ferguson, Ferguson now has the highest percentage of black business in the St. Louis area. All down the main avenue of Ferguson is black business. But there's a conflict that's taking place because there's a uh, upper middle income blacks are going back to Ferguson creating business along that area. But they're fighting with lower income blacks. And I'm saying this from blacks to black, brothers to brothers. We're all black. They're fighting with them on trying to maintain the character of that neighborhood to make it look. They're trying to make it a black business district despite of all that happened. And that the conflict is not between whites, but it's between blacks in that area saying, hey, you can't come through here and do this. You got to respect this black business. You got to do this. You can't come and tear it up. So they're fighting with that. And they're trying to bring the community back. But the communication between those two groups is always there. So, man, I appreciate you guys. I, 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 in conclusion, hey, I learned more about black history by listening to a program like this with people who have some knowledge of it than for somebody at my college or university trying to teach me black history. And they got it all wrong, all wrong. So we have to teach our kids that and not put it upon anybody. The Jews don't do it. Nobody else does it. We tell people, teach our kids black history. No, you teach them black history. And then they'll know it right. I don't teach LA kids, you know, about your family. You teach them about it because you want them to know it right. And when we start handing it down that way, we won't we won't holler about somebody teaching our kids, not teaching our kids black history. We will be teaching it. 
we'll be teaching it and then we'll have the story correct because so many stories out there you're like what the hell are you talking about that ain't right <laughs> tell it right you know the black farmers the way they teach this in, in the university is nothing the way I've heard it on Time for Awakening. Mm. You, you're like, no. And my father was a sharecropper. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. They're teaching, you know, economic black farm. Black people left the farms, went to Chicago, went to Detroit, left the farms, and that was it. And blacks gave up farms. There's a whole different story out there, man. Mm. A whole different story out there. And I learned to not rely on others to learn, but to put the burden upon myself to get new information and new knowledge and not take it personal when it doesn't agree, just uh, doesn't agree with me, but take the knowledge and disseminate it and then put it in a good way that I can understand and pass it on to others. So, Hey, I appreciate you guys, man. I'm always a faithful listener. Hey, thank you for your contribution, brother. Thank you. You hit it right on. You, you I, rescued me. <laughs> you rescued me. Let's, let's go to 602. 602. Uh, yes, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. Good evening. Brother Marcos here. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right, good brothers. You know, we have a saying, they say, black people come in like crab in a barrel. But, you know, the crab in the barrel without no water, that is not the natural habitat for the crab. You see, if you were to add water to the barrel, the dynamics for change that crab in the barrel mentality would work for the for the for the crabs because they pull each other up with the water <laughs> you see ready you know so I say that to say we are not in our right habitat and that's why we're having all these problems because we're in the wrong habitat living with these people. And we're not going to correct ourselves living with these people, living in their mix. Because we have seen what they have done historically over the years. Anytime we try to build anything, they destroy it in America. So, you know, it's just futility trying to work out anything honorable with these people. Now, in regards to the brother Adams up there, I lived in New York many years. And I tell you, Dinkins is blacker than this guy. David <laughs> Dinkins is blacker than this clown that you got coming. Because he was a police, you know, he was an ex-cop. See? And he was a Republican before. See? <laughs> so this guy is a flip-flop guy all over the damn place. But I tell you, when Dinkins was in, in office, Dinkins said, you know, I always travel with three or four hammockers. We call it the, the thing that we're on the head, whatever the hell is, you know, in the glove camp compartment. The, 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 the thing the Jews put on the yamaka, whatever the hell they call it. Yeah. So you can't, you can't be New York and not be in the pocket of them Jews. See? It's not New York, you know, it's New York. Them Jews got it sewed up, my friend. They got it sewed up. All right? So ain't no, ain't no wiggle room there for black people there. I lived in Crown Heights. Them Jews own all them houses there in Crown Heights. Okay? Black people paying rent. Section 8 or whatever the hell. See? They tell the That's all they do it. Williamsburg. You know? So, no Bushwick. They, you know what so, I mean? Them people got it sewed up. 
Yeah, them Jews. So, you know, the best alternative is what the sister was talking about there. Cooperative economics. We need some type of system, some type of systems in place so we can accumulate wealth. Because without wealth, we're not going to move. Everything in this is a capitalistic society. It takes money. money. It yeah. takes money. You, you have to pay your rent. You know, you can't recite Deuteronomy 3 to the, to the landlord and come and collect his rent. <laughs> you got to pay him some money or he will introduce you to the street. That is the real lord, the landlord. See? So, look, conditions are getting worse and it's going to force us. It's forcing us in that direction. It's because we ain't got no choice. We ain't got no choice. We got to unite. It's unity or death. Anyway, good brothers, keep on keeping on. Love you, sure. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Let's go to uh, 215. 215? Good evening, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. This show is usual. First, let me say this, Elliot. Richard, if I talk about anything, uh, first, good, good heard from Brother Marcus. I asked about him back here. I'm glad Brother Marcus is doing well and, and, and the sister that you had on with the economics, uh, uh, cooperatives and stuff, spot on. And the brother from St. Louis, I mean, like Brother Richard said, he rescued me too. I mean, the brother was spot on in what he said. Before I get into details about that, all that, uh, let me just put out to you and Richard and the Thompson we can listen to all this. As you know, Brother Ellen Richard, we've been losing a lot of soldiers, you know, heroes and sheroes over the last couple of years. They've been making transition. And I, and, and part of me know that COVID-19 has had a lot to do with it and some and other factors. You know, we just lost another strong black man this past Thursday, Ali Saladin from the Dessert Club. Well, he did? He, he passed away Thursday, yes. And he made he did matter of fact, Elliot, they having this they having this Janaza and Masjid Allah on Ogas Avenue this Tuesday, the twenty seventh at twelve PM. Richard, did and you so, know yeah. about did you know? Yeah. No, I, I'm not gonna lie to you and Richard. I did not know it this morning. I, I, I got a I got a call from 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 a brother in a dessert club, and he had told me that Ali had made transition. And it's so ironic, Elliot and Richard, because I had just talked to Ali about almost three weeks ago. We and, and stuff. That's why I say, Elliot, we have to treasure these sisters and brothers who we love and, and cherish and tell them we love them and stuff. And because you know, you just don't know, man. Because I know when you were like you said about brother Tyrone Crowley, man, I'll be pleased with him. I mean, you talk to these brothers and sisters one day, and God forbid they're gone just like that. Now I knew Elliot had some. He was having some health issues. You know, but I but I didn't know it was it was that severe. You know, he was you know like Brother Mo, he had diabetes and stuff like he was suffering from diabetes, but he was still strong. And when I talked to him on the phone, Elliot, he was his voice was strong because he was saying, Brother Joe, you know, I'm hoping that uh we can get these restrictions lifted. He said because uh I want to take a group of children back over to Africa, Ghana, and the the the, the slave dungeons and stuff, and in Egypt and places like that, the pyramids. And he was saying because the last time they was able to take children was back in 2019. They weren't able to take children last year, of course. And this year was was kind of shaky, too, because even though they lifted some restrictions, they haven't did it to where we could take that magnitude of children. So he was looking forward to, if not this year, definitely taking a group of children back, hopefully by the summer of 2022. And here, and here he, he uh, became an ancestor Thursday. I mean, 
did, and I'm not gonna lie, it hurt me to my heart. It just put me off guard. I was stunned, man, when I when I heard it. I was like, wow. I said, man, it's, I just, you know, it just it just took because like I said, I, I had the honor of going with Brother Ali and Sister Helen, and and because I was a chaperone for like three or four young black men who was under my. Uh, Watch. I had to watch and, and, and be a mentor over there. We went to Egypt. We went to Ghana. We went to Amsterdam and places like that back in the summer of 2000. And man, it just it just took me out, man. Yeah, he he, he made transition. And, and let me get a, a history on Brother Ali real quick. Ali and Richard. This brother was 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 a true Renaissance man. He people knew him before he became going to start the dessert club. He was known as Minister Philip X. And stuff. He was the minister of Mosque Number Twelve here in Philadelphia in the, in the, in the uh, late '60s, early '70s. And this brother was dynamic, man. I mean, he had the, when he, under his leadership when the Nation of Islam. You know, he, this brother had the, the mosques was jumping, and he had like six or seven. Because the brother Jason New York always talk about the steak and takes. You know, where all the steak. But this brother had six or seven steak and steak and takes that he ran himself and stuff. And his sister called this morning on terrestrial radio. And she said, she told the story that was so poignant. She said that when she was a young girl back in the early 70s, she said she was kind of want to be independent and grown, but she said she didn't want to, you know, she wanted to do her own thing. So her parents said, well, if you want to do your own thing, you better get a job. So anyway, Ellen Richard, she said she went down to, 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 one, to one of Brother Ali's steak and takes, and she went in there, and she said, I need a job. And he said, well, you better get to work, get back there and go to work. She had no kind of experience. He just said, get back there and go to work. And he said she, he said she went back in the back, and he told her how to cut up the steaks or with the onions or whatever. And she said, but that's from the, and the rest is history, man. And she and her and Ali became lifelong friends. He helped, he helped, he helped get into college, everything, man. But it was just so funny how he said it. He didn't, he didn't say he didn't give it no more. So he said, she did a job. He said, go back then, to, put an apron and get to work then. That's all, you know. But he did so much in the community, man, like so from, 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 from making the mosque vibrant in the, in the black community. He, he was strong on black businesses. That's why the sister that you had on, your Richard, he was all about black businesses, man. And as you know, Ellie, he took Brother Rob and Sister Sylvia over to Ghana and then back years ago. I mean, this brother, was, he did so much, man. He can truly, truly be messed and stuff, man. His loss is his hurt, man. His, his loss is profound, man. It's going to be very profound. I just thought, Ellie, out of respect, I shared, it, shared his passing with you and Brother Richard in the time for the week. And I'm sure he took a lot of children from New York. As you know, Ellie, he took a lot of black children from all over the country mm-hmm. to Ghana and Egypt. And I'm sure right up in New York where Brother Jay lives, he took a lot of children out of New York over the years, you know. And his loss is going to be hurt, going to be felt for for a long, long time, man. May the creator be pleased with him and grant him paradise, man. I'm stuff, I mean, just a, just a hurt, hurtful thing about his loss, man. You know, and you know, Ellie, when you, when you was talking to, to, to about the, these black politicians and, and what they don't and don't do there, and the brother from from um, uh, from uh, Missouri when he was talking, it just it just you know like you said, like, it just you know you just look at these people, man. What agenda they on? I mean, we 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 we, we put these people in office, and like you said, come right in there, right off the bat, talking about some of they represent Israel or, or Jewish people. I mean, it just it just it cuts deep and stuff, man. Why are people catching hell? And, and, and when you and Ellen, when you talk about, and I close with this, I'm gonna you press for time. I'm gonna tie it up real quick. When you talk about the black politicians ain't coming in New York this far, Ellie, we see a parallel here in Philadelphia. And I and I hop on this all the time. Over the last twenty years, brother Ellie and brother Richard, and in, in, in the listening audience, you have a you have a predominantly black 
predominantly black city council here in Philadelphia, city of brotherly, so-called brotherly love and sisterly affection. And guess what, Ellen Richard? Our schools are like a hell, are, are hell in the hand. But with all these black representation we have had, the school systems in the black community has not improved one iota. You think we have? You don't have black superintendents, black city council presidents, and look at our schools. It's a disgrace with all these Negroes holding power. And let's go back to what that brother said in the article, uh, what you said, how do you, they should have an agenda to direct that money towards the, for the for black people's empowerment, but they don't think like that. They're a bunch of handkerchief head coons and stuff, and we got to hold them accountable because you say in Philadelphia, why would all these black representation in our schools look like hell in the hand bastards? Poor decayed buildings, black children going to school with asbestos in it. Don't, 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 have, bath, don't have bathrooms with, with toilet paper or uh, rusty water coming out of the water fountains, out of date textbooks, not enough computers. I mean, Poor teachers, quality of teachers. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that our children have to endure with all these Negroes being in the office in Philly for the last 20, 25 years. It's a disgrace, man, and stuff. Our schools and the black community should look no different than these white schools up in the suburbs. It looks should no different. They should look like little, small college campuses. That's what they should look like. If you have black people that give a damn about their children, but they don't think like they get a bunch of boot-licking Negroes who already catered to us, white folks, moms and needs. And like you said to Richard Ellis a few minutes ago, if, if black folks don't put the, enough pressure and hold these niggas accountable, it'd be the same thing up in New York. The same thing with all these blacks. And if they don't work with people like Brother Charles Barron and people that think like him, it's going to be the same up in New York. They could have the same model as all over the country. Black face on white power. Black face on white power. It don't change unless we hold these people accountable and, 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 make, and make them do what they do. At least, like you said, they should be the town, town crier if they can't do anything. At least be honest with black people so we can push them and get the things done that we need to get. But they put them Negroes, they so, you know, they, 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 they're a disgrace, man. But anyway, I, I know y'all pressed for time on the map now for time, Ellie, but thanks, thanks for you and Richard for letting me express myself and put me on mute, Brother Ellie, and I'll listen to the rest of the show. Thanks for your contribution. You're welcome, sir. Richard, yes, yes. And here we come to the end of another uh, program. Um, looking forward to uh, some of the program and uh, schedule for uh, Black August. It's going to be an interesting month. Yeah. And uh, uh, some of the guests got lined up. I got to uh, look at uh, some of the uh, information you sent me so we can uh, get that calendar together. But, uh, you know, um, maybe in early September because uh, – uh, I forgot what that article. I think it says uh, some of these people take all. We got to get Charles Barron back on because I want to get his opinion on some of the things that were stated and uh, the state of some of the things going on up there because it's like you know that's just a microcosm of what's going on in all these other cities. You just heard the brother say what's going on in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad for that insight because uh, um, I was we're talking to my niece about. Um, she was saying. She was impressed. She was in Atlanta, and the, the black businesses that are growing, but that 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 tension is real. Is, I mean, uh, there's not no, not only my, that's that's for another show, but yeah, it's interesting. You talking about the, the with the, the tension that the, the brother was talking about out of St. Louis? Yeah, right. Okay. Right. Yeah, I mean, and even even I mean, totally. And um, when the political agenda by the upper middle income and they're getting money. I mean, they're getting money. I mean, you know, they, uh, what was it? Uh, the, from Bozak's um, wife, 
she's giving forty million dollars here and forty million dollars there. That's going to a certain grouping of people, and the, the black um, black executives creating a pack. You know, that's a certain group of people. They got policies. I mean, we can have a lot of agendas, but who's going? Who is going? Who is whose agenda is going to be honored and be considered black? And the question of what what effect that's going to have. You know, my brother Joe was talking about the schools. Wasn't um, didn't what's his name the mayor whatever Kenny just took back the money he was supposed to put have put out for rebuild was which is supposed to be doing something for the schools now he's saying that money is not there oh wait I, no, I didn't know that <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. oh my goodness well, so this, the, the dynamics is is real you know wow. so yeah well it'll be interesting the struggle continues. Um, before we leave tonight, just get the lineup on time for an awakening medium Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and guests on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the evening, from 6 to 8, Acres of Diamonds with Brother Jihad Ahmed. From 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Mawir Kamban and Dr. Kamal Kamban. And from 9 to 10, on the first and third Monday of the month, Conversation Reparations, they had an interesting program last week. And that's from 9 to 10, uh, Monday evenings on time for an awakening media. Tuesday, 8 to 10 p.m., Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers. And on Wednesday, it's our time, the West Georgia Cooperative Black Farmers Program is on with host uh, Brother Eric Simpson. And that's uh, on Wednesday evenings from 8 to 9. Uh, Friday, time for awakening is back from 8 until Saturday, the elders of Sankofa, Saturday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. And then on Sunday, time for an awakening is back from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing after school
Children. To save the children. To save the children. 